Chapter Two of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two Widening Horizons. Unable to recoup his business losses in Center Falls and losing even the satinette factory, Susan's father had looked about in Virginia and Michigan, as well as western New York, for an opportunity to make a fresh start. A farm on the outskirts of Rochester looked promising, and with the money which Lucy Anthony had inherited from Grandfather Reed, and which had been held for her by Uncle Joshua Reed, the first payment had been made on the farm by Uncle Joshua who held it in his name and leased it to daniel had it been turned over to susan's mother it would have become daniel anthony's property under the law and could have been claimed by his creditors only susan merritt and mary climbed into the stage with their parents early in november eighteen forty five on the first lap of their journey to their new home near Rochester, New York. Guelma and Hannah were both married and settled in homes of their own, and young Daniel, clerking in Lenox, had decided to stay behind. After a visit with Uncle Joshua at Palatine Bridge, they boarded a line boat on the Erie Canal, taking with them their gray horse and wagon, and surrounded by their household goods, they moved slowly westward, Standing beside her father in the warm November sunshine, Susan watched the strong horses on the towpath, plodding patiently ahead, and heard the wash of the water against the prow and the noisy greeting of boat horns. As they passed the snug friendly villages along the canal, and the wide fertile fields, now brown and bleak after the harvest, she wondered what the new farm would be like and what the future would bring and at night when the lights twinkled in the settlements along the shore she thought longingly of her old home and the sisters she had left behind after a journey of several days they reached rochester late in the afternoon her father took the horse and wagon off the boat and in the chill gray dusk drove them three miles over muddy roads to the farm it was dark when they arrived and the house was cold empty and dismal but after the fires were lighted and her mother had cooked a big kettle of cornmeal mush their spirits revived within the next few days they transformed it into a cheerful comfortable home the house on a little hill overlooked their thirty-two acres back of it was the barn a carriage house and a little blacksmith shop looking out over the flat snowy fields toward the curving genesee river and the church steeples in rochester susan often thought wistfully of the blue hills around center falls and battenville and of the good times she had had there the winter was lonely for her in spite of the friendliness of their quaker neighbors the DeGarmos, and the quaker families in rochester who called at once to welcome them her father found these neighbors very congenial 
and they readily interested him in the anti-slavery movement, now active in western New York. Within the next few months, several anti-slavery meetings were held in the Anthony home and opened a new world to Susan. For the first time she heard of the Underground Railroad, which secretly guided fugitive slaves to Canada, and of the Liberty Party, which was making a political issue of slavery. She listened to serious, troubled discussion of the annexation of Texas, bringing more power to the pro-slavery bloc, which even the acquisition of free Oregon could not offset. She read anti-slavery tracts and copies of William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator, borrowed from Quaker friends, and on long winter evenings, as she sat by the fire sewing, she talked over with her father the issues they raised. When spring came, and the trees and bushes leafed out, she took more interest in the farm, discovering its good points one by one the flowering quince along the driveway, the pinks bordering the walk to the front door, the rose bushes in the yard, and cherry trees, currant, and gooseberry bushes in abundance. Her father planted peach and apple orchards and worked the six-penny farm, as he called it, to the best of his ability, but the thirty-two acres seemed very small compared with the large Anthony and Reed farms in the Berkshires, and he soon began to look about for more satisfying work. This he found a few years later with the New York Life Insurance Company, then developing its business in western New York. Very successful in this new field, he continued in it the rest of his life, but he always kept the farm for the family home. The first member of the family to leave the Rochester farm was Susan. The cherry trees were in bloom when she received an offer from Kanajahari Academy to teach the female department. As Kanajahari was across the river from Uncle Joshua Reed's home in Palatine Bridge, and he was a trustee of the academy, she read between the lines his kindly interest in her. He was an influential citizen of that community, a bank director and part owner of the Albany Utica Turnpike and the stage line to Schenectady. Accepting the offer at once, she made the long journey by canal boat to Kanajahari, and early in May 1846 was comfortably settled in the home of Uncle Joshua's daughter, Margaret Reed Caldwell. She soon loved Margaret as a sister, and was devoted to her children. None of her new friends were Quakers, and she enjoyed their social life thoroughly, leaving behind her forever the somber clothing which she had heretofore regarded as a mark of righteousness. She began her school with twenty-five pupils and a yearly salary of approximately one hundred and ten dollars. This was more than she had ever earned before, and for the first time in her life she spent her money freely on herself. Her first quarterly examination, held before the principal, the trustees, and parents, established her reputation as a teacher, 
and in addition everyone said the schoolmarm looks beautiful she had dressed up for the occasion wearing a new plaid muslin purple white blue and brown with white collar and cuffs and had hung a gold watch and chain about her neck she wound the four braids of her smooth brown hair around her big shell comb and put on her new prunella gaiters with patent leather heels and tips. She looked so pretty, so neat, and so capable that many of the parents feared some young man would fall desperately in love with her and rob the academy of a teacher. She did have more than her share of admirers. She soon saw her first circus and went to her first ball a real novelty for the young woman who had sat demurely along the wall in the attic room of her center falls home while her more worldly friends danced in spite of all her good times she missed her family but because of the long trip to rochester she did not return to the farm for two years she spent her vacations with guelma and hannah who lived only a few hours away or in Albany, with her former teacher at Deborah Molson's seminary, Lydia Mott, a cousin by marriage of Lucretia Mott. In anticipation of a vacation at home, she wrote her parents, Sometimes I can hardly wait for the day to come. They have talked of building a new academy this summer, but I do not believe they will. My room is not fit to stay in, and I have promised myself that I would not pass another winter in it. If I must forever teach, I will seek at least a comfortable house to do penance in. I have a pleasant school of twenty scholars, but I have to manufacture the interest duty compels me to exhibit. Energy and something to stimulate is wanting. But I expect the busy summer vacations spent with my dearest and truest friends will give me new life and fresh courage to persevere in the arduous path of duty. Do not think me unhappy with my fate. No, not so. I am only a little tired and a good deal lazy. That is all. Do write very soon. Tell about the strawberries and peaches, cherries and plums, Tell me how the yard looks, what flowers are in bloom, and all about the farming business. During her visits in Albany with Lydia Mott, who was now an active abolitionist, Susan heard a great deal about anti-slavery work. At this time, however, Kanajahari took little interest in this reform movement, but temperance was gaining a foothold. Throughout the country, sons of temperance were organizing, and women wanted to help. But the men refused to admit them to their organizations, protesting that public reform was outside woman's sphere. Unwilling to be put off when the need was so great, women formed their own secret temperance societies, and then, growing bolder, announced themselves as daughters of temperance. Kanajahari had its daughters of temperance, and Susan, long an advocate of temperance, gladly joined the crusade, and made her first speech 
when the daughters of temperance held a supper meeting to interest the people of the village few women at this time could have been persuaded to address an audience of both men and women believing this to be bold unladylike and contrary to the will of god but the young Quaker, whose grandmother and aunts had always spoken in meeting when the spirit moved them, was ready to say her word for temperance, taking it for granted that it was not only woman's right, but her responsibility to speak and work for social reform. About two hundred people assembled for the supper, and entering the hall, Susan found it festooned with cedar and red flannel, and to her amazement saw letters in evergreen on one of the walls, spelling out Susan B. Anthony. I hardly knew how to conduct myself amidst so much kindly regard, she confided to her family. She had carefully written out her speech, and had sewn the pages together in a blue cover. Now, in a clear, serious voice, she read its formal, flowery sentences, telling of the weekly meetings of this now despised little band, which had awakened women to the great need of reform. It is generally conceded, she declared, that our sex fashions the social and moral state of society. We do not assume that females possess unbounded power in abolishing the evil customs of the day, but we do believe that were they en masse to discontinue the use of wine and brandy as beverages at both their public and private parties, not one of the opposite sex, who has any claim to the title of gentleman, would so insult them as to come into their presence after having quaffed of that foul destroyer of all true delicacy and refinement. Ladies, there is no neutral position for us to assume. The next day the village buzzed with talk of the meeting. Only a few criticized Susan for speaking in public, and almost all agreed that she was the smartest woman in Kanajahari. While she was busy with her temperance work, there were stirrings among women in other parts of New York State in the spring and early summer of 1848. Through the efforts of a few women who circulated petitions, and the influence of wealthy men who saw irresponsible sons-in-law taking over the property they wanted their daughters to own, a married woman's property law passed the legislature. This made it possible for a married woman to hold real estate in her own name. Heretofore, all property owned by a woman at marriage, and all received by gift or inheritance, had at once become her husband's, and he had had the right to sell it or will it away without her consent, and to collect the rents or the income. The new law was welcomed in the Anthony household, for now lucy anthony's inheritance which had bought the rochester farm could at last be put in her own name and need no longer be held for her by her brother in the newspapers in july susan read scornful humorous and indignant reports of a woman's rights convention in seneca falls new york 
at which women had issued a declaration of sentiments, announcing themselves men's equals. They had protested against legal, economic, social, and educational discriminations, and asked for the franchise. A women's rights convention in the 1840s was a startling event. Women, if they were ladies, did not attend public gatherings where politics or social reforms were discussed, because such subjects were regarded as definitely out of their sphere. Much less did they venture to call meetings of their own and issue bold resolutions. Susan was not shocked by this break with tradition, but she did not instinctively come to the defense of these rebellious women, nor champion their cause. She was amused rather than impressed. Yet Lucretia Mott's presence at the convention aroused her curiosity. Among her father's Quaker friends in Rochester, she had heard only praise of Mrs. Mott, and she herself, when a pupil at Deborah Molson's seminary, had been inspired by Mrs. Mott's remarks at friends' meeting in Philadelphia. So far, Susan had encountered few barriers because she was a woman. She had had little personal contact with the hardships other women suffered because of their inferior legal status. To be sure, it had been puzzling to her as child that Sally Hyatt, the most skillful weaver in her father's mill, had never been made overseer. But the fact that her mother had not the legal right to hold property in her own name did not at the time make an impression upon her. Brought up as a Quaker, she had no obstacles put in the way of her education. She had an exceptional father, who was proud of his daughter's intelligence and ability, and respected their opinions and decisions. Her only real complaint was the low salary she had been obliged to accept as a teacher because she was a woman. She sensed a feeling of male superiority, which she resented, and her brother-in-law, Aaron McLean, who did not approve of women preachers and who thought it more important for a woman to bake biscuits than to study algebra. She met the same arrogance of sex in her cousin Margaret's husband, but she had not analyzed the cause or seen the need of concerted action by women. Returning home for her vacation in August, she found to her surprise that a second women's rights convention had been held in Rochester in the Unitarian Church, that her mother, her father, and her sister Mary and many of their Quaker friends had not only attended, but had signed the Declaration of Sentiments and the Resolutions, and that her cousin, Sarah Burtis Anthony, had acted as secretary. Her father showed so much interest, as he told her about the meetings, that she laughingly remarked, I think you're getting a good deal ahead of times. She countered Mary's ardent defense of the convention with good-natured ridicule. The whole family, however, continued to be so enthusiastic over the meetings and this new movement for women's rights, they talked so much about Elizabeth Cady Stanton with her black curls and ruddy cheeks, and about Lucretia Mott with her Quaker cap 
and her crossed handkerchief of the finest muslin, both speaking so grandly and looking magnificent that Susan's interest was finally aroused, and she decided she would like to meet these women and talk with them. There was no opportunity for this, however, before she returned to Kanajahari for another year of teaching. It proved to be a year of great sadness because of the illness of her cousin Margaret, whom she loved dearly. In addition to her teaching, she nursed Margaret and looked after the house and children. She saw much to discredit the belief that men were the stronger and women the weaker sex, and impatient with Margaret's husband, she wrote her mother that there were some drawbacks to marriage that made a woman quite content to remain single. In explanation, she added, Joseph had a headache the other day, and Margaret remarked that she had had one for weeks. Oh, said the husband, mine is the real headache, genuine pain. Yours is sort of a natural consequence. Within a few weeks, Margaret died. This was heartbreaking for Susan, and without her cousin, Kanajahari offered little attraction. Teaching had become irksome. The new principal was uncongenial, a severe young man from the South whose father was a slaveholder. Susan longed for a change, and as she read of the young men leaving for the West, lured by gold in California, she envied them their adventure and their opportunity to explore and conquer a whole new world. The peaches were ripe when Susan returned to the farm. The orchard which her father had planted now bore abundantly. Restless and eager for hard physical work, she discarded the stylish hoops which impeded action, put on an old calico dress, and spent days in the warm September sunshine picking peaches. Then, when she preserved, canned, and pickled them, there was little time to long for pioneering in the West. She enjoyed the act of life on the farm, for she was essentially a doer, most happy when her hands and her mind were busy. As she helped with the housework, wove rag carpet, or made shirts by hand for her father and brothers, she dreamed of the future, of the work she might do to make her life count for something. Teaching, she decided, was definitely behind her. She would not allow her sister Mary's interest in that career to persuade her otherwise, even if teaching were the only promising and well-thought-of occupation for women. Reading the poems of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she was deeply stirred and looked forward romantically to some great and useful life work. The Liberator, with its fearless denunciation of Negro slavery, now came regularly to the Anthony home, and as she pored over its pages, its message fired her soul. Eagerly she called with her father at the home of Frederick Douglass, who had recently settled in Rochester, and was publishing his paper, The North Star. Not only did she want to show friendliness to this free Negro, of whose intelligence and eloquence she had heard so much, but she wanted to hear first-hand from him and his wife 
of the needs of his people. Almost every Sunday, the anti-slavery Quakers met at the Anthony Farm. The Posts, the Hallowells, the DeGarmos, and the Willises were sure to be there. Sometimes they sent a wagon into the city for Frederick Douglass and his family. Now and then, famous abolitionists joined the circle when their work brought them to western New York. William Lloyd Garrison, looking with fatherly kindness at his friends through his small steel-rimmed spectacles. Wendell Phillips, handsome, learned, and impressive. Black-bearded, fiery Parker Pillsbury, and the friendly Unitarian pastor from Syracuse, the Reverend Samuel J. May. Susan, helping her mother with dinner for fifteen or twenty, was torn between establishing her reputation as a good cook and listening to the interesting conversation. She heard them discuss women's rights, which had divided the anti-slavery ranks. They talked of their anti-slavery campaigns and the infamous compromises made by Congress to pacify the powerful slaveholding interests. Like William Lloyd Garrison, all of them refused to vote, not wishing to take any part in a government which countenanced slavery. They called the Constitution a pro-slavery document, advocated no union with slaveholders, and demanded immediate and unconditional emancipation. All about them, and with their help, the Underground Railroad was operating, circumventing the fugitive slave law and guiding Negro refugees to Canada and freedom. Amy and Isaac Post's barn, Susan knew, was a station on the Underground, and the DeGarmos and Frederick Douglasses almost always had a Negro hidden away. She heard of riots and mobs in Boston and Ohio. But in Rochester, not a fugitive was retaken, and there were no street battles, although the New York Herald advised the city to throw its nigger printing press into Lake Ontario and banish Douglases to Canada. As the Society of Friends in Rochester was unfriendly to the anti-slavery movement, Susan with her father and other liberal Hicksite Quakers left it for the Unitarian Church. Here, for the first time, they listened to hireling ministry and to a formal church service with music. This was a complete break with what they had always known as worship but the friendly Christian spirit expressed by both minister and congregation made them soon feel at home. This new religious fellowship put Susan in touch with the most advanced thought of the day, broke down some of the rigid precepts drilled into her at Deborah Molson's seminary, and encouraged liberalism and tolerance. Although there had been austerity, and the outward forms of her Quaker training, it had developed in her a very personal religion, a strong sense of duty, and a high standard of ethics, which always remained with her. It had fostered a love of mankind that reached out spontaneously to help the needy, the unfortunate, and the oppressed, and this now became the driving force of her life. 
it led her naturally to seek ways and means to free the negro from slavery and to turn to the temperance movement to wipe out the evil of drunkenness these were the days when the reformed drunkard john b goff was lecturing throughout the country with the zeal of an evangelist getting thousands to sign the total abstinence pledge inspired by his example the daughters of temperance were active in rochester they elected susan their president and not only did she plan suppers and festivals to raise money for their work but she organized new societies in neighboring towns her more ambitious plans for them were somewhat delayed by home responsibilities which developed when her father became an agent of the new york life insurance company this took him away from home a great deal and as both her brothers were busy with work of their own and mary was teaching it fell to susan to take charge of the farm she superintended the planting the harvesting and the marketing and enjoyed it but she did not let it crowd out her interest in the causes which now seemed so vital horace greeley's new york tribune came regularly to the farm for the anthonys like many others throughout the country had come to depend upon it for what they felt was a truthful report of the news in this day of few magazines it met a real need and susan poring over its pages not only kept in touch with current events but found inspiration in its earnest editorials which so often upheld the ideals which she felt were important she found thought-provoking news in the full and favorable report of the national woman's rights convention held in worcester massachusetts in october eighteen fifty better informed now through her anti-slavery friends about this new movement for women's rights she was ready to consider it seriously and she read all the stirring speeches noting the caliber of the men and women taking part garrison phillips pillsbury and lucretia mott were there as well as lucy stone that appealing young woman of whose eloquence on the anti-slavery platform susan had heard so much and abby kelly foster whose appointment to office in the american anti-slavery society had precipitated a split in the ranks on the woman question a year later when abby kelly foster and her husband stephen spoke at anti-slavery meetings in rochester susan had her first opportunity to meet this fearless woman listening to abby's speeches and watching the play of emotion on her eager irish face under the quaker bonnet susan wondered if she would ever have the courage to follow her example like herself abby had started as a schoolteacher but after hearing theodore weld speak had devoted herself to the anti-slavery cause traveling alone through the country to say her word against slavery and facing not only the antagonism which abolition always provoked but the unreasoning prejudice against public speaking by women which was fanned into flame by the clergy for listening to abby kelly men and women had been excommunicated mobs had jeered at her 
and often pelted her with rotten eggs. She had married a fellow abolitionist, Stephen Foster, even more unrelenting than she. Sensing Susan's interest in the anti-slavery cause, and hoping to make an active worker of her, Abby and Stephen suggested that she join them on a week's tour, during which she marveled at Abby's ability to hold the attention and meet the arguments of her unfriendly audiences, and wondered if she could ever be moved to such eloquence. Not yet ready to join the ranks as a lecturer, she continued her apprenticeship by attending anti-slavery meetings whenever possible, and traveled to Syracuse for the convention which the mob had driven out of New York. Eager for more, she stopped over in Seneca Falls to hear William Lloyd Garrison and the English abolitionist George Thompson, and was the guest of a temperance colleague, Amelia Bloomer, an enterprising young woman who was editing a temperance paper for women, The Lily. To her surprise, Susan found Amelia in the Bloomer costume, about which she had read in The Lily. Introduced in Seneca Falls by Elizabeth Smith Miller, the costume, because of its comfort, had so intrigued Amelia that she had advocated it in her paper, and it had been dubbed with her name. Looking at Amelia's long, full trousers, showing beneath her short skirt, but modestly covering every inch of her leg, Susan was a bit startled. Yet she could understand the usefulness of the costume, even if she had no desire to wear it herself. In fact, she was more than ever pleased with her new gray delaine dress with its long, full skirt. Seneca Falls, however, had an attraction for Susan far greater than either William Lloyd Garrison or Amelia Bloomer, for it was the home of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, with whom she had longed to meet since 1848, when her parents had reported so enthusiastically about her and the Rochester Woman's Rights Convention. Walking home from the anti-slavery meeting with Mrs. Bloomer, Susan met Mrs. Stanton. She liked her at once, and later called her at home. They discussed abolition, temperance, and women's rights, and with every word Susan's interest grew. Mrs. Stanton's interest in women's rights and her forthright clear thinking made an instant appeal. Never before had Susan had such a satisfactory conversation with another woman, and she thought her beautiful. Mrs. Stanton's deep blue eyes, with their mischievous twinkle, her rosy cheeks, and short dark hair, gave her a very youthful appearance, and it was hard for Susan to realize she was the mother of three lively boys. Susan listened enthralled while Mrs. Stanton told how deeply she had been moved as a child by the pitiful stories of the women who came to her father's law office, begging for relief from the unjust property laws which turned over their inheritance and their earnings to their husbands. For the first time, Susan heard the story of the exclusion of women delegates from the World's Anti-Slavery Convention in London in 1840, 
which Mrs. Stanton had attended with her husband, and where she became the devoted friend of Lucretia Mott. She now better understood why these two women had called the first Women's Rights Convention in 1848, at which Mrs. Stanton had made the first public demand for women's suffrage. They talked about the bloomer costume, which Mrs. Stanton now wore, and about dress reform, which at the moment seemed to Mrs. Stanton an important phase of the women's rights movement and she pointed out to susan the advantages of the bloomer in the life of a busy housekeeper who ran up and down stairs carrying babies lamps and buckets of water she praised the freedom it gave from uncomfortable stays and tight lacing confident it would be a big factor in improving the health of women thoroughly interested susan left seneca falls with much to think about but not yet converted to the bloomer costume, or even to woman's suffrage. Of one thing, however, she was certain. She wanted this woman of vision and courage for her friend. End of chapter 2